Are you ready for me this morning? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> We're going to be real departure from the ordinary this morning. So let's stand up, let's pray, and then we'll open our Bibles. Good to see everybody here this morning. Hope everybody's feeling good. We're already into August 2018. Can you believe it? Nope. I can't. <laughs> so Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Holy Spirit, we invite and welcome your presence. We thank you that you are the spirit of truth. And Lord, I ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation right now to breathe upon us in this place. Breathe upon me. Use me as your mouthpiece for the unfold, for the unfolding of mysteries. And Lord, open our ears, our spiritual eyes and our hearts to receive the fullness of what you have for us. Let us get the impact and the essence of what you want to say today in Jesus name. And if you can agree with that, just say amen. And if you have your Bibles and you want to open them up, you can open them up to the book of Hebrews, (laughs) Hebrews chapter nine. And I want to talk about uh, Melchizedek again. So long title this morning, but you got to it's just my personality. Thank you. I have a knack for making the simple complex. <laughs> so this is uh, Melchizedek. We're in this series looking at Melchizedek. We're going to be looking at Melchizedek for a while. Melchizedek. Ready for this? And the activation of human divine potential. Melchizedek and the activation of human divine potential. Now, let me just refer to this because I want to keep coming back to this. So when we looked at Melchizedek, we if you go back to the first teaching or second teaching that I did on it, you have to understand that from a Jewish, from strictly a, or a Hebraic perspective, let's call it that. I, I prefer that because it's a broader term. From a Hebraic perspective or a Jewish perspective, uh, they understood that there were mysteries that were hidden and coded into the scriptures. Now, if you were trained or raised, let's not say trained, but raised reading and understanding Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, then you would know that the Hebrew letters are not just symbols for sounds. Like A, you know, that's what, that's the whole phonics. Remember hooked on phonics and all that is, in the English language, all the letters are is symbols for sounds that we make when we talk. A has ah, A, long, short, that. That's as far as it goes. Hebrew language and most ancient languages weren't like that. Hebrew language, first of all, developed out of hieroglyphs. Now you know what hieroglyphs were, right? So your first writing was hieroglyphic, meaning that it was pictures that were painted on the wall. So when most people think of hieroglyphs, they think of like ancient Egypt and the pictures that are painted on the wall or whatever, so that a person, when they read, they were not hearing sounds, they were seeing little silent movies. So that they're seeing what they're reading. That's the first writing. It's visual. So the ancient Hebrew language evolved out of hieroglyphs. So each letter is a picture. Right? And then their letters and numbers were the same. So when you're reading scripture from a Hebraic perspective, you are not just hearing sounds and words that have these little meanings, like we do when we do it in English. What you were doing was seeing imagery and seeing numerology. So you could be looking at a book or a ledger. You could be looking at a book or a silent movie. Do you get it? You know those things where you take the pictures, like my kids, they'll color the different pictures, those little coloring books, and then you flip the pages real fast and it makes it look like the guy's running in motion or something? That kind of thing. Are you tracking with me? So if you take Melchizedek and you just, what's the definition of that? If you do that from an English perspective, the definition of Melchizedek is king of righteousness. But if you take it from a Hebraic perspective, it's a much, it has a much broader meaning because each letter, and I did this in another teaching, so I'm not going to repeat it, but you can go back and get it and watch it. Each letter is a picture that expands upon the meaning of the name. Got it? So when I say Melchizedek means this, and somebody goes and looks it up in their little Bible dictionary, they're going to say, what? 
But we took each letter, the picture, strung it together and said, here's the word picture of the name Melchizedek. Is everybody tracking with what I'm saying? So let me give it to you again. The water above us. Now, water was also symbolic of consciousness. So when it says the water above us, it can also mean the higher mind or the mind of God or the mind of the heavens or the consciousness of the heavens. The water above us descending and binding to our hearts where it is received and, here's the key, releases full spiritual potential. Joining heaven, listen to this, joining, everybody say joining, heaven and earth together, creating a door for the manifestation of heaven upon earth. That's what Melchizedek was doing. He was bringing the waters from above to flow over us, to be received in the heart, so that once that mind or that consciousness was received in the heart, it would activate our full spiritual potential, or what I'm calling the human divine potential. Right? Thereby bringing heaven and earth together and creating a doorway, which actually you become, for the manifestation of the kingdom of heaven upon earth. And all of that is pictured for us in the drama of Abraham giving birth to Isaac after he receives the blessing of God from the high priest Melchizedek in Genesis 14. So that Paul says in... Okay, so, so the book of Hebrews says that Melchizedek's name means... King of righteousness. But he was not, but he was the king of a place called Salem or Shalom. So he's the king of peace. Somebody say with me, king of righteousness. King of peace. The only place Melchizedek shows up in scripture in the Old Testament is where he mediates the blessing of God to Abraham in Genesis 14 as the priest of God most high. It's the only place he should, the only appearance he makes, he's got a cameo. It's like He's like Stan Lee in the Marvel comics. Or Alfred Hitchcock in the older films. Right? It's the only place he shows up. And then it says, after these things, he begins to talk to God about the birth of Isaac. Right? Isaac's name means laughter. Got it? So, Romans 14, 17, Paul says this, The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That all flows out of that encounter between Melchizedek and Abraham. Do you see it? Because Melchizedek means king of righteousness. The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness. The king of Salem, peace. And what's Isaac's name mean? And joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? So you become a doorway then for the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy to manifest upon the earth. Now, with all that in mind, <laughs> come with me to Hebrews 9, and we'll look at this. Verse 11. So the first part of Hebrews 9, now this is hard to do with people who don't have a good, solid, biblical background. But you know the story of Moses, right? Most of you know the story of Moses, hopefully, where um, the Israelites had been in Egyptian bondage. God raises up a man named Moses to go and bring them out. God performs all these miracles and brings them out, takes them into the wilderness. And one of the things that God instructs Moses to do when they're in the wilderness is build a tabernacle. And the word tabernacle means a dwelling place. And it gives him very specific instructions. In fact, he takes him into the heavens and he shows him exactly what the tabernacle is supposed to look like. And the tabernacle had basically three 
structures to it. It had what was called the outer court where anyone could go in except women. <laughs> We're dealing with patriarchal culture. But the outer court. Then you had the tabernacle itself and the priests could go into what was called the holy place, which was the second structure. And in there you had the candlestick. You had a table with bread and, and wine. And you had a bowl that burned incense. And then between the holy place and the most holy place was what was called a veil. And in the most holy place, the actual presence, the literal, physical, tangible presence of God was dwelling in the Holy of Holies. And only one person in the entire nation could go into that place, and that was the high priest, and he could only go in one day a year. That They carried that throughout the wilderness. That becomes the pattern then upon which the temple is built. So that the temple also is structured according to this same pattern. So that the temple also had a most holy place where there was a veil. Where the presence of God dwells. Where only the high priest could go in and only once a year. Are you tracking with me? So the writer of Hebrews is talking about all this. And he says in Hebrews 9, all this is symbolic. It represents something. It's not the main thing. It represents something. And what it's pointing to, it's an illustration, one translation says, to point to what Christ did as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Is everybody tracking with me? Is everybody awake? All right. Because it's important to, to see this. So I'm going to pick it up then in verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here... He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. So when the high priest would go in, he had to kill a a goat and spread it. and had to have the ashes of the heifer and all that stuff. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse your conscience? So what does the blood of Christ do? Cleanse your conscience. I'm just amazed at pastors. Sorry. I keep going back over this conversation I had. I lost my place. Okay. Who offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse your conscience from acts that lead to death so that you may serve the living God. I want you to notice here also, he says, cleanse your conscience from acts that lead to death. How does, how, how, how does that work? How's, how does the conscience or uh, really there, the word conscience could also be translated consciousness. How does that relate at all to action? Because your consciousness doesn't act. Your consciousness precedes that. Like, I had to decide to come this morning. That was an act of consciousness, right? But it took my body to act. So how does this whole cleansing thing work? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. So I did a message a while back called The Cross Will Blow Your Mind. And I had a pastor... Come away from that message saying Aaron doesn't believe in the blood of Jesus. And we met and he's like, you don't, you don't believe in the blood of Jesus. In fact, he went on my Facebook page and accused me of treating the blood of Jesus as an unclean thing and trampling underfoot the Son of God or some stuff like that. <clears throat> and his problem was, I was saying, no, everything about the cross has to be working in your mind. That's why Jesus was crucified at the place of the skull. It's not an outward thing, it's an inward thing. So here we're being told in Hebrews, the blood of Christ is not for any outward thing. And it's not effecting anything in the consciousness of God. And that's how we've distorted the gospel. Because we're biblically illiterate and we just believe what we're told. I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean to say we we trust that these things come from the Bible. We don't dig into them and really look for ourselves. 
And we allow people to give us their lenses and their glasses of what Scripture is, and then we just see the world and see the gospel and see God and see ourselves through whatever lenses we've been given. But it's very clear that the blood does not do anything to God. Okay, communion. We're going to take communion today. So Jesus, right, when he takes the cup, says this is what? The blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. Does God have any sins that he needs remitted? Let me ask you again. Does God have any sins that need to be remitted? So does the blood affect God in any way? Who does it affect? Us. Which is why you drink it. It's all there. It's all there in the symbolism. You have to drink it. You have to internalize it. Until you internalize the cross so it's something that happens within you, not just something that happens outside of you, it does you no good. So the early church understood you have to eat the body and drink the blood because what was done externally has to be internalized. And if it's not internalized, it does you no good. But we have a gospel today that that lets us off the hook so that nothing changes in the soul, nothing changes in the heart, nothing changes in the consciousness because what we've been deceived into believing is that the blood had to do something in the consciousness of God. I.e., He could not reconcile His righteous nature with His merciful nature. He could not be righteous and leave sin unpunished and at the same time be merciful and forgive sin. So he plots to come up with this thing where he tortures his only begotten son so he can feel better. So something changes or something reconciles in the mind of God. So that now he can treat you differently. And he can see you through the blood. See, we, we have taught a God who plays pretend, who plays dress up. You know, I had three sisters, older sisters. You know that had to be brutal. <laughs> when it came time to play dress up. <laughs> we did this little video. They, you have no idea the levels of blackmail that, that they had, especially now at Facebook. I mean, it's bad enough when it was just, I'm going to show the church this. We had these old home movies that my parents took that are still somehow, somehow. I mean, my God, my iPhone breaks down after three years. It can't handle the operating system anymore, whatever, modern technology. But somehow those 8 millimeter reel-to-reel things survive year after year and decade after decade. <laughs> And we have these old, you know, 8mm things. We did this uh, Superman um, thing. And so I dressed up like, we did this movie. We did our own home movie. And I was dressed up like Superman. I think Jackie was dressed up like the villain. And I think Jamie was the, the, the captive or something. I don't remember how it all went. But, but they still have it. And like, they, what's that? She, see? See? See the, the levels of blackmail that, that go on behind the scenes in church? She just said, I've seen it. So my point is we're playing dress up. And we have taught a God that has to play dress up with you because he can't stand you. In other words, you're sinful, you're rejected, you're whatever. So the blood then is there so that it changes something in the mind of God so that he plays dress up with you. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. He sees you through the blood. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. He sees you in Christ. Billy Graham used to say the word justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. So God treats me just as if I'd never sinned. Well, then he's playing pretend. So N.T. Wright, who's a modern scholar, he says it's it, that that idea of justification is that God's playing a moral fiction with you. And here's why I think that lie's been sold to us. Because it's still functioning under a Levitical system where everything is out external. Where it's out here. 
In other words, what it's talking there, it says the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, sprinkled to the cleansing of the flesh. If you did an action that made you unclean, you went to a funeral because touching a dead body would make you unclean under the old covenant. Um, if <laughs> It's the only one that comes to mind. I'm sorry, ladies. It's in there. If you're around a menstruating woman, <laughs> you're unclean. And you could go to the temple and be cleansed. But it was all out here. Right? It was external. It didn't touch anything inside. That's what the point the writer of Hebrews is making. It's not touching anything inside you. So by saying... God required a blood sacrifice to feel better about you. We put everything outside ourselves. All you got to do is pray a prayer and then you're born again, you're in. And we've put everything outside of us because we've said heaven's out there and hell's down there. And it's and the books are opened up here. You see how it's all outside of me. And so eventually I die. I go to a planet called heaven. They open up the books where all my sin is recorded, God reads the sins, then He looks at the book of life to see if I prayed the prayer right. Oh yeah, that's right, I forgot. So the blood of Jesus covers you. Okay, so I'm not angry, I'm going to send you to a hell of eternal conscious torment anymore. So now come enter into the joy of your Lord. It leaves you completely untouched. It leaves you completely unchanged. And it does absolutely nothing to awaken your spiritual potentials or what I'm calling your human divine potential. Right. Nothing. And we go to external churches and we do external... It's all this external stuff that does nothing to... And, and so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's saying the Melchizedek order is something totally different. The Melchizedek order is there to bring the water of the heavens above and impact your consciousness. So therefore, Christ, coming not after a Levitical order, whose blood does something out here, but Christ, coming after the order of Melchizedek, goes in, into, goes into a sanctuary, into a tabernacle made without hands. That is not part, oh, I'm gonna preach now. That is not part of this creation. He goes into that place by his own blood. Oh, this is going to... Oh, I can't wait to get this out. By his own blood to do what? To cleanse your conscience from death, from dead works, from sin, from failure, from not measuring up so that something changes inside of you. He's bringing the waters from above. Why? To, To enter into the tabernacle not made with hands, which is your own heart. Because God does not dwell in temples made with stones. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He goes inside of there as the Melchizedek order. Why? To bring the water of the heaven above into your heart where it can be received. Thereby awakening and releasing and opening and activating your divine potential. So that heaven and earth can come together so that you become a doorway through which righteousness, peace, and joy can begin to be released throughout the world. What sanctuary did he go into? This high priest. Oh. Let's go back to the temple. The temple in ancient times was the place where heaven and earth joined. It was the place where God and the angelic and the human being. It's it's a place where the rift between heaven and earth, the separation between heaven and earth was mended. So much so that the great Jewish historian of the first century, Josephus, tells us that the Jews referred to the temple as heaven and earth. So I've got news for you. When Jesus says in Matthew, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And not one jaw or one tittle of the law shall pass away until heaven and earth passes away. And you understand that Matthew 
is written specifically to the Jews about the destruction of the temple. He's not giving modern day Judaizers license to put people under the obligations of the law that have to do everything with the actions of the flesh. Because this heaven and this earth hasn't passed away yet. What he's saying is he's saying, I'm coming to fulfill the law, and when you see heaven and earth, when you see that temple pass away, then you know for certainty that the old covenant has completely passed away. It has completely vanished and lost its validity because something greater and newer and more superior has come, which is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Okay, back to the point though. So heaven and earth is the temple. And the veil is the place. Now you understand that in the veil, I'm going to... I like doing this though. In the veil is the picture of the zodiac. Because I hate to disappoint you, all ancient people were astrological. And so what the high priest is doing is he's passing beyond the stars. He's going beyond creation into a place that transcends creation. To shed the blood, to mend, not to appease. That's why it happened... In October, because the rainy season in the Middle East, the dry season is in the summer. The rainy season is in the winter. So at the end of the harvest, they had received the blessing of heaven, but they also were aware that their sins could separate them. So the Day of Atonement was a renewal ritual to mend any rift between heaven and earth in preparation for the next harvest. So it was a cosmic redemption. Let's just look at the blood, just because I got accused. Hey, Pastor Aaron didn't believe in the blood. <laughs> Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. Even in the Old Covenant, I've given it to you upon the altar to do something inside you. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the souls. Let me read you a scholarly definition for atonement from a Jewish perspective. Give me just a second to do that. All right, this comes from a scholar named Mary Douglas, who is published in the Jewish Studies Quarterly, and here's what she says. Terms derived from cleansing, washing, and purging have have been imported into biblical scholarship. No, I'm sorry. Has imported into biblical scholarship distractions which have occluded, this is why it's scholars, you've got to laugh. Occluded just means clouded. Made it so you can't see it. So let me read this again. Terms derived from cleansing, washing, and purging have imported into biblical scholarship distractions which blind you (laughs) to Leviticus' own very specific and clear description of atonement. According to the illustrative cases from Leviticus, to atone means to cover or recover. Everybody say recover. To cover again, or to repair a hole, or to cure a sickness, or to mend a rift, to mend a rift, or to make good a torn or broken covering. Where's the rift? The rift is between the consciousness that is above and the consciousness that is below. Or to mend or to heal. So it's not to appease. So when it says the blood is upon the altar to make atonement for the soul, and people read that as a peace, they're just reading a peace, because it's not the word appease, which means to deal with the anger of something. It's the term atonement. Now watch this. It's at one meant. It's the right word. To take something torn and make it one again. At one meant. To repair a torn or broken covering. At one meant. 
What's the covering? The waters above. All right, let's, it's so, it's hidden in the Bible, but it's so there. In, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the earth was what? Without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw the light that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning and it was the first day. What's the next thing God does? He separates the waters above from the waters beneath. And then it says there was evening and there was morning the second day. But it does not say God saw the separation and said it was good. First day God sees creation and says it's good. Second day God doesn't see creation and say it's good. Third day God sees creation is good. Fourth day God sees creation is good. Says it's good. Fifth day God sees creation says it's good. Sixth day, God does what? Creates man. Sees the creation, and your translation says, it was very good. But in the Hebrew, it's two goods put together. It's tov. So first day, God sees the light, and he says tov. Second day, God separates the waters above from the waters beneath, and he doesn't say tov. Third day, God creates vegetation or whatever, he says tov. Fourth day, God creates... Well, I forget. Whatever. Uh, Tove. Fifth day, Tove. Sixth day, Tove, Tove. Why? Because humanity was the aspect of creation that was to rejoin heaven and earth. So God... Says the separation between heaven and earth is not good, but as soon as the man shows up that can bring heaven and earth back together, now we take the good that was missing from the second day and we insert it into the sixth day because now man is there to rejoin heaven and earth and to cause the cycle to begin again. And you see it in Genesis 2 because when God, it says when God puts man in the garden, he says it had not rained because there was no man to till the ground. And in the Hebrew, the word for till is the word for worship. So if you're Hebraic and you're reading it, nothing had come from the heavens into the earth because there was no man in the garden to worship. So you have Melchizedek whose name begins with a mem. And the number mem, the number there is 40. Remember I told you it's numerical code. I know I'm being repetitive, but this is new, right? It's the number 40, which is the number of a generation. Are you breathing? Okay. Let's see if I can do this right. I messed it up last week without it in front of me <laughs> when I went back and listened. Mem, Lamed, Kaf, Yod. Mem, 40. Lamed, 30. Kaf, 20. Yod, 10. Kof, 90. But they didn't pay attention to the zeros, so 9. So you have 40, a generation coming. 40, 30, 20, 10, 9. How long does it take to have a baby? Mem, the higher water. Mem also represents consciousness because it was the first place that you could reflect. But it's a higher mem. It's descending. See it? 40, 30, 20, 10. Generation. Nine. Seed. Abram. What do you suppose Abram's name ends with? Or Abraham. What do you suppose it ends with? Mem. So you have Melchizedek bringing the upper mem, <sighs> joining to Abram, who represents the lower mem, or you've got the waters above and the waters beneath of the second day of creation. And Adam did not fulfill his duties. Watch this. Adam, Aleph, Dalit, Mem. Abram, because the H was inserted later. Aleph, Beth, Resh, Mem. Adam, Aleph, it means an ox or someone who 
works the ground or breaks up potential. See, that ground has potential to grow, but not till the ox hits it. So that's why it begins with the aleph, because the aleph breaks up the potential. Adam, aleph, dalet means a doorway. So he was to be the doorway through which heaven could flow into the earth. Mem, he was to have the consciousness of God reflecting the image of God and ruling the earth. That's why he's Adam. But he fell. And he failed. And he left humanity trapped in darkness and death and the fallen mind of Adam, which thinks God is someone judgmental and scary and someone to hide from. It's a total projection of the fallen mind of Adam. Consciousness. All right, let's do it this way. I'm just throwing a bunch of stuff at you, I know. And I'm not even getting to my points that I want to, but I got lots of time. Let's do it this way. Why do you suppose it says in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good? And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And when God beheld everything that he had made, behold, the Lord saw that it was tov, tov, very good. Right? Saw. Puts Adam and Eve where? In the Garden of Eden. Tells them, do what? Don't eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where's the evil? Where'd it come from? Just a few verses before. And God beheld everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Don't eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where's the evil? Because see, when God sees, there is no evil. And watch this. When Adam and Eve eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does the Bible say happened to them? Their eyes were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they were ashamed. And they covered themselves. Then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Which, what we don't see, what I don't know, if it, how many of us have seen this? What we're seeing in Genesis, the first three chapters of Genesis is the two mems, or the shift of consciousness from the higher vision of God that sees everything good and can't see evil. To the lower mind of Adam when he eats at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means evil is merely the projection of a knowledge that has shifted from the higher consciousness to the lower consciousness, from seeing through the higher eyes to seeing through the lower eyes, to from seeing from a spiritual heavenly perspective to seeing to an earthbound carnal, just this five physical world perspective, so that then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the place where man sits in judgment calling evil what God has called good. And the biggest one they call evil is God himself. I heard him coming. I knew he was going to get me. That's the fallen mind. So the Melchizedek priesthood is about bringing the higher mind into the lower mind, which is why Christ, when he entered, you got to quit thinking about you as somehow locked only into your five physical, into your physical body. And contained in your five physical expense, uh, senses and your earthly experiences. If that's true, how can you already, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? And notice that's in the plural. He entered into a tabernacle that was not of this creation. People say, well, that's in heaven. Oh, in the beginning, God created the heavens. Watch this. He entered into a tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. So if God created the heavens and the earth, how could he have entered into a tabernacle in heaven that's it'd still be part of this creation? It's not what the guy's saying. Because you see 
All of you have a divine spark inside of you that is divinity, that is uncreated. That God could look at Jeremiah and say, Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nation to the nations. Before I formed you in this mother's womb, before you came into this time-space reality, before you became a part of this creation, I knew you. Paul said that we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world to receive the adoption as sons. How could He choose you if He did not know you? So you have to understand that your real identity, who you really are, is divine and is eternal. Not just in the future, but in the past. That's why it says of Melchizedek in Hebrews that he was without beginning of days or end of life because he brings the revelation that deep in your innermost place, deep in your own holy of holies, is your divine essence that is without beginning of days and without end of life, that is not tainted by Adam's fall or by Adam's sin, that needs absolutely no redemption whatsoever because it was never fallen. You have a self that never failed. You have a self that never never fell, that never failed, that never messed up, that never knew death, that existed in eternity past, that God knew and programmed and put a frequency inside of. And then formed you and brought you into this time-space world. And you have a rift inside you between the part of you that you have forgotten. That is the part that is God. That is divine. That is the son. That is the daughter. That has all the potential of God. And the fallen mind that's forgotten who you are. And is separated and fallen from your real identity and your real self. And then religion says God has to play some game with you. No, what what atonement does is not clothe you in the blood of Jesus so that God can play a, a legal fiction. What atonement does is it brings at one mint. The, the, the divine seed of who you are, the divine spark that is inside of you, the divine reality that is you, the God that is you. And the fallen part of you in your soul that has been rifted and it lifts it out of pain and it lifts it out of shame and it lifts it out of death and it lifts it out of failure consciousness and I don't measure up consciousness and I'm just too ugly and I'm just too stupid and I'm just not capable and all that stuff and it brings you out of that place until finally the higher mem meets with the lower mem and there's an at one month that takes place inside you and that's what the blood of Christ does. Because He applied His blood inside you. That's the place He entered. But you say, no, that's not possible because I hadn't been born yet. No! You're thinking like the fallen mind of Adam, limited by time and space. And you don't understand that in Revelation there is a door that John goes up into. And when he goes up through that open door in the book of Revelation, God says, I'm going to show you things that were, things that are, and things that will be. I'm going to bring you into a place where time and space doesn't matter. And what you don't realize is that that door, that dalet, is inside you. That in the temple, it represented all of creation because in the temple was all of creation. So inside of you is everything. Inside of you is everything. Archangels and angels and the cloud of witnesses and Christ and creation past, present and future. All, all of it's connected. All of it's at one, all of it's inside of you. The potential for all of it's inside you. That's why all things are possible to him that believes. Because him that believes transcends the limitations of everything and enters into the fullness of what the blood of Christ actually effects. Which is to open up, to pull back the veil and open up the realities of your own divine potentials. Joining heaven and earth and making you the doorway. So Christ, as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, his job, his job, his at one 
was mending the higher you with the lower you. So that you could be in your soul at one. See, the life of the flesh is in the blood to mend the soul. So he brings his life into you to mend the soul so that you become the doorway for the release of the fullness of what God wants to do. So watch this. This this is where I close. Adam. Abram. Aleph. Breaks up potential. Beth. A family or a house. Resh. Head or exaltation. Mem. Consciousness. Melchizedek meets Abram. And blesses him by the God of heaven and earth. Because in Abram, he's rejoining. The blessing is the blessing of at one Which is why it wasn't until after that that Isaac could be born. Because he had to transcend his own dying body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Because it's foreshadowing the life of the blood being inserted in a family. After that, Yahweh, Yod, He, Vav, He, meets Abram. And says, now your name will be Abraham. The divine letter. He takes the divine letter or the divine breath or the hey. And inserts it so that he goes from Abraham to Abraham. So that now his divine potential is there. And it's only after he becomes Abraham that he is no longer shooting blanks. <laughs> Just had to see if you were awake. <laughs> now watch this. Yod, He, Vav, He. Alright. Abraham's married to who? Not Sarah. Not Sarah. Sarai. Who has a dead... Boom. So God changes her name to Sarah because he's got two Hays. Yod, Abraham, Vav, Sarah. And he created them in the beginning, male and female, in the image of God. So that when Abraham and Sarah come together, they're representing the fullness of who God is. To give birth to the child of joy. After they met the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And it's a picture of you. And your divine human potential being awakened by this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that the fullness of God, the full image of God, can once again be released. Because the kingdom of heaven is not meat or drink, but it is righteousness, peace, and Isaac. Joy, laughter in the Holy Spirit. It's all there. You see it? Let's pray. I had fun. I, I don't know. I hope, hope you all did okay. Let's stand up. <clears throat> if you're willing and able. Do you see it? I mean, this thing is so incredible. When you get outside the legalism of it, when you get outside the, the externalization of religion, 
And you realize that the whole thing is a book about you and about awakening and opening up your spiritual potential to become a divine human being in the earth. And think about this. You've got a doorway inside you that gives you access to things that were, things that are, and things that will be. And what happens when the whole church enters through that doorway and begins to release begins to heal the things that were, begins to transform or accept or enjoy the things that are, and begins to call forth a future that they dictate as a kingdom of priests, the things that will be. Look out. That's what you have the potential for. That's what we have the potential for. But as long as we're operating under Levitical system, it won't work. You gotta come under the Melchizedek order. Lord, bless this word, anoint it, let it go out and go forth powerfully and bring forth transformation and healing. And most importantly, Lord, allow it to awaken our consciousness, cleanse our consciousness by the blood of Jesus. Help us to enter in what to, into what's already been done and already been accomplished for us. To awaken the human divine potential inside of every person. Father, I speak to that uncreated part. I speak to that divine spark. I speak to that divine breath inside of every person right now. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will come as the wind of heaven and you will breathe upon that spark and you will cause it to elevate and rise up in the consciousness of your people until there is a breaking of limitation and there is a releasing of potentialities. Allow us to experience your voice and the wonder of who you are. In Jesus' name. And you can be seated for one second. It's Communion Sunday, so I'm going to bless the elements. I think, hopefully, you have a richer understanding of what you're going to do by partaking of the elements in this moment than you did before you came in. So I'm not going to belabor it, right? But nevertheless, we do this in remembrance of the Lord. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he blessed it. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing upon the bread as we break it together. And he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. And so, Lord, we thank you for the cup. We thank you that it carries the blessing and the power of the blood. And he says, now watch this. Watch this little word play. This do in remembering who I am. Watch. At one meant. Remembering your divine self to your human self. So they become one member. So that as he is, so are we in this world. Father, let the power of that transform our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're free to come. We've got tables on both sides. Communion tables open to anyone. You're free to come and partake.